coming together on the observance day is one prayer. It's a time to recollect the Buddha, Dhamma Sangha. Our good fortune that a Buddha arose in the world and we've been born in a time where the teachings of an enlightened Buddha are still available. Even though we haven't fully realized the Dhamma yet, it's to our advantage, our benefit that we have these teachings available to follow, guide us, inspire us. And they're coming from the mind of an awakened one. And the Buddha, out of compassion, taught human beings how to free themselves from stress, suffering on every level. Because his wisdom and insight or knowledge and vision was so complete, every step is laid out for us. Explanations of the most refined and subtle aspects of the Dhamma and very basic practical steps to practice in daily life, they're all there. We're also fortunate that we have Kanyana Mitta here in the world. Our teachers from Lumpochara downwards, you might say. As we know, Venerable Ananda once asked the, or discussed this point with the Buddha, the importance of Kalyanamitta. Suggesting it may be half of the holy life. And the Buddha said, no, it's the whole of the holy life, complete. As Kalyanamitta support us, particularly in the beginning of our practice, when we're still caught into doubt, uncertainty. Our mind is still shaken by the worldly dhammas, our old karma. Kanyanamitta can be very reassuring, supportive, provide good examples, explanations, and so on. And then we have to practice. It comes back down to us. In this day and age, the challenge is particularly dealing with 
the limitations of our the society around us and the way the world, our culture, our society is developed, particularly with things like technology, cultural norms now. We're bombarded with information all the time about everything. News from all over the world, information about many different things, every little aspect of our life. And we have the media, communications media, to provide us with that information, whether we like it or not. And this provides us with challenges. <coughs> All the research indicates that our attention span is not as good as it could be, as we're constantly being stimulated in different ways the different information that's coming our way is demanding our attention. So just playing into the hands of kilesa, craving, which we have anyway, whether there's information technology and different things around or not, it's there, it's there. but our craving is easily tempted by different conditions, uh, information technology, different forms of media provide perfect conditions for craving to arise. Constantly jumping from one bit of information to the next, one fact, one bit of sense stimulation to the next. This is why we live in the forest. It's useful. Gives us Gaia Viveka. A seclusion from at least some of the different sense data information that the world is providing, sending our direction. We live in a secluded place so that we minimize some of the sense contact. Gives us a little bit of space to establish mindfulness and deal with our senses that obviously there's still sense contact going on all the time but if it's limited a little bit that helps especially in the beginning of our practice so the Buddha himself Ajahn Chah also their examples Kalyanamitta they practiced in the forest lived in the forest became enlightened in the forest, <coughs> pointing out the suitability of the forest environment for the practice. Even though it's not always easy, it's not comfortable like in the town, city, but it's conducive to training the mind. From Gaya Viveka, we get Jitta Viveka. If we put effort into developing mindfulness, clear comprehension, and bringing up effort, energy in the practice as we chant, Atapi Sampachano Satima, ardent, fully aware, mindful. If we put effort into developing this, then the peace and quiet of the forest is 
It's very conducive for developing mindfulness and keeping in touch, keeping abreast of our own mental activity. As we know from the lay life, we're bombarded with information, other people's moods and karma, and then our own karma. This is what brought most of us to the practice, is seeing the limitations of an untrained mind. Always pray to every bit of stimulation and the different moods that come up and sometimes overwhelm us completely. The thinking mind, the concepts, the ideas that we're constantly stringing together, getting lost in. Then the emotional states that come up, sometimes very powerfully over in a way that overwhelms the mind and the body. It's particularly strong emotions like fear, or lust, anger, depression, worry and anxiety. Even if our thinking mind is not going wild, just the emotional state and the feelings that come with different emotions can be quite overwhelming, overpowering. But we're coming to practice here in the forest to develop some of the skills of the Eightfold Noble Path to deal with that, to deal with our own karma, our own mental experience and physical experience, and developing some wisdom. Wisdom applied to the way we live, our lifestyle, developing and holding to some wise values, morality, goodness, compassion, and the seeking of wisdom itself, learning to educate ourselves through the practice. But in particular, developing this artapi, sampajano satima, mindfulness and alertness, clear comprehension. The qualities that are never wrong, always useful, always beneficial. They give us a little bit more mental control and some of the wholesome states of mind that come with the development of mindfulness, present moment awareness on a daily basis. And the sense of well-being that comes with it. You know, all the research, science, medicine, Psychology it all backs this up now. Even though they often don't talk much about Buddhism or the overall Buddhist practice. And the research is pointing to the value of mindfulness practice in daily life. It's what the Buddha, Lumpur Cha, would know anyway through their own practice, but now we can see it in research reports, experiments, scientific evaluation and so on. As we come to practice, we get to know for ourselves the value of bringing up mindfulness to deal with mental suffering, stress, 
and just the different moods and experiences of a human mind. Obviously it takes effort, so this is why we have periods of group practice where we come together to put effort. We might have a schedule bringing us to sit and walk meditation for a period of time where we have to put forth effort to bring up mindfulness. Because it's not always something the mind wants to do. You know, the nature of craving is to take the mind off, away from the present moment. Always seeking something more, something different, better. So to practice mindfulness can be quite a challenge. It can be used mental energy, can be frustrating, tiresome, dealing with an untrained mind when dunha craving is taking over it. But the alternative is we let dunha have its way and just off the, the mind goes, as we see, even in just one meditation session, how far away it can go from the present moment, from this body, from the breath, away into endless thinking or just falling asleep, drowsy. If you let the mind go, that's what happens. It becomes just another slave to a craving. We have all the information there, all the sanya, the memories, and the past karma to string many thoughts together and many, many moods together. Sometimes the moods are so strong with the emotional state and feelings that come up. They completely fixate the mind. If you're feeling very angry or depressed, you know, your whole body can feel very heavy. Somebody compared it with like, they make a hole in your head and pour concrete in. You feel that heavy when you're feeling depressed. Or when lust comes up, it's very hot agitating. In an unusual way you could say it's very stimulating, it very brings us right to the present moment. Say when you have lust for a person, what's it like? Ajahn Chah used to say, there's nothing else you'll think of at that time, even if it's only a fantasy, but even more so if you're in the presence of that person. Your eyes are fixed, your ears are fixed smell, taste, touch, all the senses are stimulated. So you, it's, it's kind of a strange kind of present moment awareness when you're transfixed with lust. Somebody was saying the other day that there's actually a, one of these psychology experiments they did on thousands of different people who participated and they just ring them up, I think once a day over a period of time and ask them two questions. And they say, first, what are you doing? And secondly, what are you thinking about? And where is your mind? So it's a very large research group and carried out over many, many weeks. And one of the findings was that obviously when people are doing many activities, they, driving a car, receive the phone call, 
They say, well, I'm driving. Where's your mind or what are you thinking of? Hmm. It's miles away. Jobs, very mundane activities, and body and mind are not together. The mind is not with the activity that the person is engaged in. But the one activity it was, there was a correspondence between body and mind. It was any kind of sexual activity or flirting or lustful activity. The highest rating for body and mind and thought and activity being right there together. Again, it just proves what the Buddha said a long time ago, what Ajahn Chah said a long time ago. Lust is the most powerful desire we have. And it brings the mind right to where the body is. Mind and body are very stimulated. All the hormones are working. Very difficult to separate body and mind when lust arises. Difficult to gain perspective or insight. Difficult to establish mindfulness. This is why it's the hardest of the five hindrances to overcome. Even people who've attained deep samadhi can still easily fall prey to lust. People with great intellectual knowledge of the scriptures and the Buddha's teachings and meditation easily can become prey to lust. One slip of mindfulness and the mind is gone and caught up with that desire. So obviously we have many challenges with our own karma, our own human experience. Particularly as monks, nekama, the very lifestyle we're leading is one of nekama, celibacy and an abandoning of sensuality. So right at the heart of our lifestyle, becoming aware of lust and developing the skills and the mindfulness, the insight to deal with it. So the Buddha always reminded us, come back to the body, your first foundation of mindfulness. Come to know the body in the body. Be mindful of the body. Be mindful of the breath. Be mindful of the posture. <coughs> and this is a recurring theme over and over again in our day, coming back to the present moment where you are, what you're doing, where what your body is doing, coming back to the breath, coming back to the present moment. This already settles the mind as you establish mindfulness in your posture, in the breath. Already it can make you feel a little better if you have been stressed or called into a particular mood. And then it provides the fertile foundation, the foundation for cultivating more continuous mindfulness, awareness. But we have to put the effort into that, bringing attention back to the breath, back to the body. And sometimes we can contemplate the body itself, particularly if the mind is in a state according to lust or just in a very distracted state. Sometimes the breath is too subtle, 
to stay with. And we'll go straight to the body, contemplate the 32 parts. When you begin that contemplation, it's almost like coming back to your ordination day when you're given the first five meditation objects. You know, it's a skill you keep returning to, you keep re reaffirming your intention to ordain as a monk, practice for Nibbana, practice for letting go of craving, upadana, attachment. And you run through the 32 parts of the body. Every time you shave your head, it's like a reaffirmation of your wish for developing the path, developing insight, and then you're contemplating. When you shave your head, you're watching hair fall off the head. The impermanence of it, the selfless nature of hair. Even if you're not shaving, become aware of hair on a daily basis. You know, even our short hair, if you don't wash it, it starts to smell, it becomes greasy. Even more so the longer hair, lay people. You don't wash it for very long, it attracts grease and dust and smells. It's unpleasant. However good, nice it looks, and the smell, the feel is unpleasant. The longer it goes unwashed, the worse it gets. You begin just in this simple way, reflecting, maybe visualizing, visualizing your own hair, single hair, a group of hair, or just single, visualize the hair, say a small amount of hair that comes off when you shave your head. Visualizing it, holding your attention on it, so that's what mindfulness, clear comprehension, does, gives you that space and the detached awareness just to keep knowing the object. So you keep your attention with your hair of your head. Keep bringing it up as an object, a visual object. In the beginning you can think about it as well. Just hold your attention on that part of the body. As the mind settles down, maybe you just visualize it, stick with it. And then you move on to the next, the hair of the body, kesa, loma. And just notice on a daily basis. Again, if you work, you sweat, see the hair under your arms, body hair, it smells. If you ever practice not bathing for a few days, it can get matted together smells, becomes sticky, becomes unpleasant. That's the same for everybody, male, female, young, old. And the, these more external parts of the body, you know, just teaching you the unattractive nature of the body, you're counteracting the former obsession, lustful obsession with the beauty of the body. Your nails, however much you shape them and paint them, and they keep getting dirt stuck under them. You can't avoid it. And you notice when you work or do any kind of cleaning or work, start to get 
the, under the nails. If you don't wash them, well, they look ugly, may even smell also. Teeth are the same. You don't clean your te teeth, we you get bits of food stuck between them. Start to get breath, bad breath. Worse than that, sometimes our teeth start to go rotten. Have you ever known someone who's got a rotten tooth? If you get close to them, you can even smell it sometimes. It's pussy. It's the nature of this body. We have to keep cleaning it just to keep ahead of the potential for disease or just the antisocial aspects of it. Skin the same. Even skin smells if you don't wash it with sweat, with dirt, dust starts to smell. And then in your meditation, if you're calm enough, we'll go further. Flesh, sinews, bones, bone marrow. Start going through every part. Obviously, as soon as you peel off the skin, well, the underneath of the body is already not pleasant. You have a visit an autopsy, you'll notice it smells. Body inside it smells. Some parts really smell. The intestine, the stomach. If you consider the liquids, all the orifices of the body become kind of waste waste chutes for liquids. Earwax, snot, phlegm, spittle and phlegm from the mouth, sweat and grease from the skin pores, obviously urine, excrement. And there's nothing attractive in any of it. As you meditate on this, well, you're directly bringing up that perception that you're super sanya, and you're seeing the body in the body. You're seeing the full, complete picture, no longer the bias, the picture of bias by lust, where we tend to just focus on the bits we like, what we like about somebody else's body. Now we're seeing the full picture, so if you keep doing it long enough and it becomes established, that perception will just pop up naturally when you're around people, so even attractive people people who might stimulate lust. You can't help but notice the unattractive bits. If you keep focusing on that, then lust that had arisen will fade or it might not even arise in the first place. If you practice it regularly, then the mind gets used to the visualization of these body parts. So you can hold a body part, maybe sometimes the body part just emerges into the mind when you're meditating, it just pops up by itself. Other times you focus the mind on a body part and nimitta arises, what we call ukaha nimitta, a visual image, you keep it in mind, you keep holding your attention on that with mindfulness, exploring it, investigating it not letting the mind stray off elsewhere. As long as you're calm, you can do that. You might not be able to do it for very long, but
but it's enough to start teaching the mind to let go. Let go of lust and see through the lustful delusions that we formerly held to. And the meditation can progress. You can put all the different body parts out on a table, gather them together in piles, the liquids together in one spot, the solids elsewhere. And you keep on reflecting, asking questions. You know, who is this? Where is the person in this? Where is the attractiveness in this? And keep on contemplating. You know, what happens to these body parts? They go back to the four elements. Earth, air, fire, water. Where is the being, the person, the self in these elements? Each element is without any, we'd say, essence or self. They're actually kind of universal. You're contemplating this, you're seeing the selfless nature of the world and this body and these candors. You're seeing the emptiness in this, your own candors. Even this word emptiness, in modern English language, it's always associated with negative connotations. You know, we say when we feel depressed, we feel empty, despairing, demoralized, crushed, whatever. It's always associated with more negative perceptions. And we have to be careful of that. People who are new to Buddhism often don't like the what they hear when they say the Buddha taught us to see or perceive emptiness, the emptiness in form, the emptiness in mental formations, thoughts, concepts, memories. But there's no way around it, it's the word he used, emptiness, without self, without essence. Sometimes we use insubstantial, our thoughts are insubstantial, they arise, they pass away. Our emotions, our feelings are insubstantial. They arise, they pass away. However strong or overpowering they seem at the time, they all arise and pass away. They're insubstantial, they're empty. But contemplation of the body is probably the best doorway into the perception of emptiness. You keep coming back to this body and you see it's not self, it's not a substantial self. It's made up of elements, it's not something that we can control. None of us can stop the aging process or prevent our inevitable death or the death of those we love. That's teaching the mind something. And as you practice like this, again, with the perception of emptiness, it doesn't make you become cold, heartless, quite the opposite. Because once you perceive the three characteristics in this body, you see it as impermanent, 
unsatisfactory or dukkha, selfless, ownerless, then it helps you to let go of all bias from the mind. You can relate to other people from wisdom and compassion rather than the prejudices and the biases that our mind, the conceptual thinking mind loves to create and hold on to. You know, our loves and hates. If you're seeing people as 32 parts and five, four elements, five candors, then love and hate is dispersed. If you can see that your own 32 parts, separate them out, contemplate them, see them as four elements, then you see other people are the same. You see the dukkha in your own body, you see the dukkha in others. If you fall ang into anger, ill will towards others, and you come back, contemplate the body, you say, well, what are you getting angry with? Somebody else's set of candors, the 32 parts and four elements. <coughs> when you can see no self, then there's nothing to get angry about. And there's no point trying to harm somebody because they're already facing old age, sickness and death, whatever. There's no point latching on to the perception of that person with ill will because their body is already dukkha. They have quite enough dukkha to deal with without us adding to it. So the body contemplation actually leads to the arising of metta, compassion as a result. Brings up steadiness of mind, equanimity, calm. It levels the, the mind that loves to latch on to differences of you know, perceptions of the difference between me and you, us and them. The differences we have according to our views, opinions, character traits, behavior, race, culture and so on. The normal things that unenlightened people focus on, argue about compete with and so on. And you come back to the body contemplation that all starts to dissolve. And this is why it's where you can dissolve your Sakaya Ditti. Obviously in the world we're still constantly using and referring to the conventional reality. We have no choice because of language and just the affairs of the world, we need, need to use conventional reality, samuti satcha. So we have the concept of you know, man, woman, young, old, monk, lay person, European, Asian, different religious labels, labels of job, personality, good person, bad person, smart person, ignorant person, you know, all the labels that we put on to each other, mm. that we feed in our proliferation. As we contemplate the body, we can still see 
how conventional reality works on that level, and it's true on that level, but it's not the ultimate truth. Conventional reality is anicca dukkha anatta, changes. It's not that reliable. You come to contemplate the body and see the 32 parts, the four elements, and you're bringing your mind to see paramatasatcha, ultimate reality. It dissolves the conventional reality. So then the sense of lust, hatred, fear, worry, starts to dissolve with it. As you bring up mindfulness, awareness to the present moment, then the mind is not so stuck on the future, not so full of attachment, regrets or resentment about the past, what other people have said and done, not planning or fearing the future so much, it's just with the present moment and the way the body is right now. And we can start to see things more as khandhas and elements when there's mindfulness in the present moment. In the end, everything breaks down to elements. You just say, if you are annoyed with someone because of what they said, as you bring up mindfulness to that experience, what is it? It's sound. There's the ear, there's an element, there's the sound, sotadhatu, satadhatu, Sota vijnana dhatu, there's the ear consciousness, but they're all dhatu, elements, and there's no being person in that. When mindfulness is established, we can appreciate and understand that. So the words of someone else, they may be pleasant or unpleasant, they're elements coming to the ear, the hearing, the ear, the sound, the vibration, they're elements. When you see that, then the emotion that may be forming of liking or disliking starts to stutter or slow down because we know it's just elements. Nothing to get attached to, nothing to get worked up about, stimulated by, nothing to take personally, nothing to give too much importance to. Because if we give in to it, then we start to react with craving. I like it. I don't like it. I want it. I don't want it. Which leads to making karma, mental, verbal, physical karma. And we end up with more suffering, clinging to our perceptions and thoughts about people, the ones we like, the ones we don't like, what we want from the world, what we don't want from the world. Mind is not happy, not satisfied. It's the opposite of when we bring up mindfulness and the mind starts to feel at ease because it's, it's satisfied in the present moment and there's a detached awareness, knowing phenomena but not grasping at them. And the way the Krugarajans talk about the practice, you know, it's a fullness, an experience of fullness of mind, completeness of mind, contentment, and not seeking anything else. It starts when we turn our attention back to our own candors, developing mindfulness. I remember one of the first 
teachings I received in Thailand when I was in Anagarika, I went with a group of monks from Wat Nanachat to see the Jalkana Ampur, who I think he quite liked when we visit because normally he was doing a lot of ceremonies and administration, being a city monk. But he also liked to meditate, so when he saw us come, he gave us a talk all about meditation, which was translated and we were very happy to receive. I can still remember his face. He's long, long gone now. He died many years ago. But I can remember his face and teaching about going for a tour around your mind, uh, body with mindfulness. He said, you, you Pratfarang, you Western monks, foreign monks, you've all traveled around the world. And you know so much, you've had so many different experiences, but you don't know your own body yet. You don't know it in terms of Dhamma. Now you have to turn your attention, turn inwards. Instead of traveling around the world, you have to travel around your own body with your own mindfulness and wisdom. He gave a very useful talk about this practice of body contemplation as a way to bring the mind back to the present moment, cut through the mental proliferation fed by craving. This is where the, the Four Noble Truths arise. This is where you see the Dhamma. It's not out there by traveling all over the world. I think most of us have sort of worked that out by then. That's why we became monks. But still, he's reminding us yeah, the way to end suffering is not out there, it's in here, in this body. They say six foot long and half a yard wide. And this is where you, you come to really understand the Dhamma through practicing mindfulness. For someone who's practiced it before, maybe it's a bit easier because they've done it previously. And sometimes the the nimitta of the body as a corpse or a different part of the body just arises naturally. Someone like Venerable Yasa in the time of the Buddha. He's a wealthy family. All the pleasures and comforts. You know, just like someone today, maybe they've got good income, they can go out partying, clubbing, eating the best food, mixing with all their friends got everything they need, all the entertainments they need. But still the doubt, the lingering doubt that this is not it. This is not happiness. The, you might say the good kind of discontent. You know, there's the normal suffering kind of discontent where we're not happy with whatever we've got. This is the discontent of someone who can see through the delusion of the world and what what the world has to offer. And then actually seeing the asupa in what normally most people would see as an image of fun. And then everybody, you know, after the party, everybody crashing out. Most people in a state of drunkenness or just stuck in their own fuzzy mental state. But for him, he had clear visions of seeing all the dancing girls in, as a super, seeing the, the saliva coming out of their mouth, the messed hair, the snoring, 
seeing them more as unattractive or even as corpses, quite naturally. It's led him to a real sense of being fed up with the lay life and what it had to offer. And saying, oh, it's really confused here. I don't want this confusion and chaos anymore. And all the burdens of this. I want somewhere where there's no confusion, no burdens. So off he went in the middle of the night. Maybe the middle of the night is a good time for spiritual awareness to arise because the body is light, the world is silent. So you can really develop some insights. So quite naturally for him, insight arose. He saw people as corpses rather than as people. You could see the inherent truth that people don't stay looking good forever, they don't stay healthy forever. So if he went looking for something different, again through his good karma comes across the Buddha in the forest and the Buddha knows his name, calls him over and says this is a place where you're not going to be confused or caught into burdens or disturbed. And the very thing he was seeking the Buddha knew so the Buddha could say it without Yasa having to say anything. And that gave him the faith to listen to the Buddha's teaching and become a monk. So for some who have practiced before, it seems a bit easier. But this is how they practice, you know, contemplating the body, seeing the body in the body, the 32 parts, the four elements, see the impermanence of a human body, the dukkha of it, and the selflessness in it lack of substance or essence in this body. It's not a self. It's not something we can own, have. It's not something that will make us happy all the time. You know, how much happiness has your body given you? Well, relatively small amounts here and there and a lot of dukkha in between. And as you study your mind, you'll notice a lot of a lot of the objects of craving, it's only the anticipation and the expectations we have around them that builds them up into something. When you actually get the objects of your craving, it's very temporary, fleeting kind of moments of pleasure and often quite dis disappointing, which is why craving re-emerges straight away and we look for the next thing and we're never satisfied. If you start to take that constant obsession and looking for the next pleasure, the anticipation of pleasure in different things, you take that out of your mind through the practice of mindfulness, bringing it back to the present moment, you can see it's a lot better. The mind is happier, it's free. It's like it's suddenly got a lot of space, whereas before it was very cluttered, pressured, burdened. Now it feels light, spacious, and ultimately empty. In a mind that has mindfulness and sees the Dhamma is empty, but not empty as in meaningless or depressed, but empty as in empty of delusion, empty of self, empty of attachment, empty of suffering. So I'll leave you with these 
reflections tonight.